Welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio, your weekly nature playlist for kids and families. Join us each week where we'll show you how getting outdoors with your family can help your kids be happier, healthier and smarter. And you'll open the door to a whole lot of fun too. So come on, lace up your boots and let's go and play outside. Here's your host, Tanya Maloney. Hi everyone and welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio. Thanks for coming along to play with us today on episode 5 of the show. Today I talk to Australia's queen of common sense when it comes to parenting our kids. Her name is Maggie Dent and she is a champion for children and parents. I love talking to Maggie. She's funny and she's really got an incredible perspective on how to help our kids grow and thrive in the world. One of the things we discuss as part of the interview is how to help kids deal with grief and it's kind of a tricky situation for some of us for some of us I know I've been in that situation myself with my own children but I think nature can be a really great ally for us in discussing things like death and grief with our kids. When Nash was three years old I remember having a conversation with him about grandpa. Now my father had passed away unfortunately 10 years ago so my kids really never got to meet their grandpa which was a real shame but we often talk about him in in a wonderful way and so they have these memories and stories that we can share with them and they love it and we were talking one day he asked me where heaven was and if grandpa was there and I said okay well yes that's where grandpa is and Nash then had we had a beautiful conversation about how you get to heaven and what happens and what's up there and you know I don't know all the answers um, but it was a really fun conversation and a few weeks later we were down in the paddock and one of the calves on the farm had died and we had gone to get it and we were going to go and bury it. Now the kids didn't realise that the calf was dead they thought it was actually just sleeping and Nash said oh is it asleep and I said no honey well it's actually it actually died it got too cold and sometimes that happens and Nash turned around and he looked at me and he said oh well that means then it's gone to heaven and maybe grandpa can look after it because he was a dairy farmer and I thought wow that's such a really simple way for kids to be able to understand that circle of life and I know you'll uh, I know you really enjoy Maggie's perspective on that too so let's get into the interview I hope you enjoy it as much as I do she's a very funny lady and she has a real breath of fresh air in helping parents just like me and you parent our kids in a common sense way everyone, Tanya Maloney here and today I'm really happy to have with us the inspiring and amazing Maggie Dent and Maggie's an Australian author, educator and parenting and resilience specialist with a particular interest in early years and adolescence. She's a passionate advocate for the healthy common sense raising of our children in strengthening families and communities. Uh, and she counts among her finest achievements her four spunky sons, as she calls them, and I'm sure they feel the same about their really amazing mum. So thanks, Maggie, for being with me today, and, and welcome. 
Yay, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. And I have to say that I was really wrapped when you agreed to talk to me. I've spoken to so many wonderful people and, and just to have you on board as well will add something really special to the series. So thank you and um, yeah, I look forward yeah. to uh, hearing your beautiful perspective. And you just need to remember and remind people that I'm just a scrubber from the bush in Western Australia, a little farm kid who grew up in nature, who has a passion for learning and life and people and especially kids. And if you follow your heart, sometimes <laughs> strange things happen. Like I stand on stages sometimes and wonder how the heck I got there. Yep, absolutely. Well, I'm a scrubber from the bush as well, so I'm sure everyone listening who is who is um, not from Australia will have no idea yeah. what we're talking about there. No idea what we're talking about. Farm kid. Yep, farm kid. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, so now as a result of, you know, growing and all the wonderful things you've been doing, you've got a really wide range and depth of experience and, and it gives you such a unique perspective um, on helping parents and children as a result. So would you tell us about your background and how it brought you to all the great stuff you do today? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm actually a product of a large family as well. And I think when you have a large family, you do an awful lot more social, emotional learning. Um, plus I, I grew up on a very large farm with, you know, 10,000 sheep and a lot of nature. Those things led me to be, um, my mum was completely emotionally unavailable. She um, struggled with alcohol. Um, my sister and I think probably she had postnatal depression six times that was never diagnosed and very isolated. So I spent my life escaping the toxicity of my mum. And in that journey, it let me be a very deep thinker as a child, very deep thinker. My dad was a humanitarian, he, he always, and also an agricultural scientist, which is why I love reading all the research and translating it into meaningful stuff. If I hadn't had those two parents, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, and when I left school, I was very, you know, obviously quite confident we didn't have television screens and all we did have was those boring things called books. Avid learner, an avid learner, but an avid imaginary, uh, you know, like I just was always dis disappearing into nature. So I knew that was a protective factor that I think the modern world's diminishing a little bit for our kids. So after uni, I became a high school teacher. I loved the kids that no one liked. I loved the boys that farted in my classrooms and told me where to go. And I loved the kids who hated things I guess it was I loved to change quite boring to teach um, and then when I began my intensive breeding program I was very blessed to be able to stay home for eight, nearly eight years and in that time um, I did need something for my head lovely English nanny who would come in and be my spare grandma because obviously my mum was a long way away and probably a good thing too and so I be I did palliative care out there to the depth of emotional suffering. Came back through funerals and became a celebrant. I've done 500 funerals and over a thousand weddings. So it was about, I looked at what do we do as human beings that connect? And when we're separated, how do we bring us back? And that's when I decided to do teaching. Um, because I understood adolescence uh, at this level, I was quite intuitive and I felt I needed more information. So the, the counselling, the parenting and the passion for education give me like three prongs on a three prong stool. So when I'm with parents, I can I can meet some of their understanding about how to engage our kids in learning. I actually know why we go get mucked up later and how to unravel some of that. And also I know the importance of belonging and feeling that we belong. Our human primary need is human intimacy. 
and you know it's embedded into absolutely everything I do is how do we build the sense of belonging in a world that's become more chaotic and busy and I guess that's that's kind of it in a nutshell obviously I've I've dabbled in all, all sorts of things to understand I had to do a lot of work to heal my own child and also the product of an alcoholic parent so those of patterns I've also unraveled and, and you know it takes a long time to learn to love oneself and I'm there. I'm there. I love me. I love my balm. I love my outrageousness. I love the fact that I um, I do need to escape from people into nature to fill up my cup and I have healthy boundaries and the most significant blessings in my life are not only, you know, the fact that I'm able to connect with people. It is the deep connectedness I have now because I was such a separated and lonely little child when I was little. Yeah. So yeah. The, the you're the ultimate example of resilience. Yeah, yeah I am. I, oh, yeah. If I listed it, one day I did list it at a conference that back for but and I mean it was really like oh god so that's what I'm actually on the planet about because for a long time it was about building kids self-esteem there was something missing in that although my definition of self-esteem includes self-efficacy which is our capacity to do for ourselves so which is a key aspect of resilience so I was kind of on the right pathway um, but it took a long time for me to realize that as a teacher um, it wasn't the teaching of English and writing paragraphs that actually changed kids lives it was the, the humanity I presented to them and the unconditional positive regard and care, which I just said was love. I just loved them all. That really significantly changed what happened in my classrooms. And, you know, that is my mission. Um, kids just want to know they matter. They want to know that you care about them. They want to know, can I rely on you? And can you be the big person in my life when I get scared? And if you feel those needs, you know, basically your kids will gradually be able to do that for their own children. Absolutely, yep, absolutely wonderful gifts to give to ourselves and, and to our kids. Do you do you now get calls or letters or emails from from kids who you've taught in the past saying, "Wow"? Oh, look, that is just—I just burst into tears when that happens. And I had one just the other day on Facebook, and I saw because some of the kids that contact me now, the ones who really connected at the top, you know, those ones. Yes. But the ones you thought sometimes that you had missed, that is the profoundness because you didn't miss them at all. And they have walked away. And I think I've, I've shared the story about my bikey guy that stopped me in Albany once. And he really basically said, do you remember me? And he was really scary and hairy and all sorts of things and scared the poop out of me. And when he said, he said, um, yeah, and I remembered I taught him in year eight and he, you know, was a very quiet little dad, quite often devilled. And what I've unfolded basically was I decided to have stuff as they came in the class for the kids who turned up without their stuff. Yep. So rather yep. than bust them, I wanted them the opportunity to participate. He said, how many times did I need to borrow your paper and your pencil case and everything that year? And he said, I'm so glad you didn't ask me then because it would be too big for me to share. He said, my mum was an alcoholic and when she was on a bender, I'd go to Nan's and that year my Nan was on a lot of benders. So I spent a lot of time on a park bench. But your classroom is where I went to and I was accepted and I was, and he said, I just was welcomed. I got the same smile as everyone else. It was like a sanctuary in my life and you taught me kindness and I've wanted to thank you ever since, even though I'm a rough looking bikey. Yes. Um, I'm a real softy on the inside. I, I help out with, you know, Meals on Wheels and I, and I volunteer for things and it's because of you and I, and, and I, then I sobbed all over him in the main street <laughs> of the town looking really weird. Um, and that's what I keep saying to educators when I work with them. We're actually in the art of sacred people making. Our children cannot become who they 
who they can be if they are unable to witness the higher way of being and the higher way of living. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether a child comes from a loving home, um, the more people they witness who are able to witness compassion and kindness or thoughts, then the more it opens in their mind, they just model it, download it. It's a possibility. If we are humans, we can't, we can't just suddenly miraculously pop open and do it. And that's the challenge. Um, in today's world, I think we're, we're losing a lot. We're thinking it's about testing, and you've heard me growl about napalm in Australia, uh, NAPLAN, the in, you know, benchmark testing, because in a way we're looking at our children like brains on a seat, and there are so much more than that. And that whole child perspective is a big part of my mission, that there's a mind, a body, a heart, and a soul, and we need to nurture all levels of it. Um, and that's really what a healthy, great childhood is, is, you know, it is a bit free rangy and crazy and dirty and noisy and chaotic and unexpected. Um, and you don't need to live in a big house with two parents and have really high incomes to create children who can thrive later and become amazing individuals. Well, that's that's, that's good to know. And I'm sure it's that just knowing that and having enforce is going to help so many parents out there yes. uh, like me too. So, um, some beautiful stories and, and. I can get emotional over that, over that, definitely. So, um, <laughs> Oof, there are babies in my world. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you talk about you talk about the a term you use a term called common sense parenting in raising children, mm. and and why sometimes does common sense maybe go missing, or we might be misguided, informed in when many of the parenting moments and challenges that yep. we face. Okay, then. Enormous pressures that we see out in the, in, the, in the parenting world is the pressure to be a perfect parent. Yes. Because somehow or other, if your child misbehaves, it means you're less than a parent, a good parent. Um, we're not sure where that come, came from. I think it's the increase in the media world and the, you know, the computer world where we see so much more. Um, and I think also um, intuitively or otherwise, um, parenting isn't a competition. Um, and we've when we get a child, we are given a child, whatever we have to think about that, it comes to us. It's a miracle they even conceived in the first place. It's a complete gift. And when I work with Indigenous tribes and, and um, no matter where in the world, they say it's so funny, Maggie, because we revere our babies and our elderly the most. And in the Western world, we revere good looking people in the middle. And we kind of don't treasure these, these sorts of signs. So what we've found is a, a world that says, a lot and you hear me say that it's a skipping and going I'm standing in a car park at a looking at a child who's got their tracky dacks inside out going why didn't that mother put them on the right way that where would an actual be, that would be me <laughs> no well I'm gonna say well what happens is that child put them on their self exactly you know and that's the part of parenting is a child masters the skills to become competent they don't get it right perfectly and they're not bothered it takes them two or three goes they don't mind how daggy they look and that's what worries me that we've become quite judgmental and secondly the common sense is there's this political correctness that oh my goodness it's it's hideous and one of the things that's happened is we mustn't do things that hurt children's feelings because that will damage their self-esteem and who they become and i'm going to say under five um it's a really good time to hurt their feelings because their emotional uh, connections aren't as strong as they are as puberty hits. Yes. So if you're yes. learning about the unpleasantness of failing at 13, it's going to hurt a lot more than it does at five. Yes. 
Yes. And I keep yes. on saying, pass the parcel should have only one prize while you toughen up your kids emotionally. <laughs> yes, it sucks when you don't get a prize. We validate the feeling. We say there's another game coming. And, and, I, and that's one of the things I, I'm seeing a lot. And I keep saying, well, you know, at some level, what are we teaching our children by giving them everything they want or overindulging their feelings? Big, ugly feelings can be managed with a bit of coaching and validation. And if we deny them that experience, we're going to make them much more vulnerable to the big bumps and bruises that are going to happen in adolescence as their intensity feelings kicks up. But also it's a bumpy ride anyway. So we're noticing massive increases in depression, uh, self-harm, uh, school failure, and also nastiness online. And I'm, I'm sure it's because we're not exposed to what I call normal childhood nastiness early on. One of your books you wrote actually was yeah. called Real Children in an Unreal World. And you told yeah. me the, the need for kids to have real experiences. Yes. And yeah, you've just explained that beautifully. Yeah. They do need that real experiences because when they get out into the big wide world and we can't hold their hand every step of the way, yeah. That's the other thing, we, we, the normalising of giving our children wonderful, entertaining things like iPads and things. Yeah. Now, remember, they're not bad in themselves. They only become um, destructive if our children the things they need to do developmentally in those early years. And if you're playing with an iPad, it's not going to throw us back when it doesn't win you know it's and, and that feeling of, oh, I've just it's an iPad, so it's not quite as strong emotionally. So I get worried about that, that one day you're going to want to live in a relationship with someone. And if you're not used to sharing and, you know, sucking it up when you don't get your own way, uh, you are going to be less effective at creating a harmonious relationship. So that learning, once again, we can't test it. We can't measure it. It makes some of us mummies and daddies feel really uncomfortable when we do tough love. But children who don't know know are actually going to be really able to struggle in their world because unless they're the CEO of their own company for the rest of their entire life um, and married to an iPad, I don't know how they're going to cope emotionally with the dark moments of, you know, jocks on the floor and wet towel on the bed and the toothbrush left open and the dunny seat up. So all of those things are actually our capacity to manage can be built from a very early age um, and that, that is the mission. Before five is a great time. After 13, going to be really a lot harder. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and we were just talking about before, um, you know, the, the need to give our kids those responsibilities from a yes. really early age. And can you give us some examples? You know, you shared with me a very simple example. Yes. Yeah, well, Tony Christie from New Zealand, who runs amazing um, childcare centres, she's uh, she follows Emmy Pickler's work. And it's something I, I, I was touched with early. She's a Hungarian paediatrician who believe that we need to treat these little ones with great respect, which means we don't do things to them without asking their permission first or letting them know, you know, and, and it was beautiful to watch. But what she had a picture of in her presentation was a little toddler, I would say not quite 12 months of age, holding a teacup and drinking out of it without spilling it. So the perception that we go from a breast or a bottle to a toppy tippy cup that tips over and got a nozzle on it, um, before they can drink properly is actually a furphy. And I know that was something early with me. Um, so with my oldest, um, even though I was a dodgy mum because I left him home the first time I went shopping because um, I forgot about him and I got the nappy bag instead. Terrible moment. But anyway, that's what happens. I, I didn't do it again. So what happened was he was only toddlering and he took off walking really early and surprised the heck out of me because I didn't know it was coming. And I just sort of turned to him 
and I didn't realise that what goes in could actually be being interpreted much more. And I said, be really good if you took your own wet towel and popped it in the laundry for mum. And then I went off and did some jobs. And I remember going out later to go to the loo and there's the towel in the laundry. And I went, oh, 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 they're way smarter than I thought they were. And from that point, my parenting changed. Um, and I, it was very much a, a processing to giving them a chance, not calling on them to make a quick decision, giving them an option and letting them think for a minute. It just intuitively came to me that, oh, they're so much cleverer than I've got credit for. And, and to relax if they weren't doing anything, because that's the pressure of parenting is the, the, the people who want parents' money, and that's all sorts of things, toy companies and bounces and jumpers and everything, uh, make parents feel guilty or frightened so you put your hand in your pocket. And it's, 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 it's an, a massive market. And you just look at all the advertising and I keep saying to people, you don't have to go and buy toys that have got stimulating and will make your child smart because their natural world is already fascinating because it's the, through the eyes of a little tiny toddler. It's not through the eyes of a mature adult who has a prefrontal cortex and has had life experience. You know, and that's why the broken dead leaf, they go, oh, my God, look, I got a leaf. And we go, it's a dead one and it's broken. And, you know, we're not looking through the awe of the child. And when I slow parents down, and, you know, the, the book I've written about silence and stillness in children, when I slow them down and disconnect them from their smartphones and just pause in the presence of their children, their children almost instantly will say things like, oh, mummy, I love you because they know you're actually present. The greatest gift we can give our children is actually to be present, to be wandering all over the place and doing a million jobs. And the pressures on mummies is just enormous, enormous to do all these things. And in actual fact, where do I find those few micro moments of connection? Because that's when your child knows that you love them. They don't know you love them because you cook their meals and wash their clothes and you know do all the things that we do like that. They only know it because you've actually seen me and been present to me for a few moments really quietly. Yeah. Or else tickle the poop out of them. That's always good. <laughs> stop, stop. No, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, and it, sometimes it is just those moments and we're so busy in our lives and we think we don't have time to sit down and, and yeah. spend, you know, hours and hours playing with trains, you know, which yep. my little boy and girl now yep. just adore to do. And I love doing it with them. And you sometimes you yep. just come in and you check on them and you sit down for yep. a second and they yep. just open those lines of communication. It is one of the, the philosophies of Emmy Pickler. She wants people to sit and observe, observe, watch what your children are doing from a place of awe and it moves the dynamic profoundly. Um, and it is that, you know, that word we say busy. Uh, and it was something I had to work on because coming from an alcoholic background, sometimes you substitute an alcoholism or addiction uh, with alcohol or drugs with one with work and being busy. And fortunately, I finally curtailed it and I can have days off without feeling really guilty. But when I say to a mum, you know, um, do you sit sometimes on a couch with your cup of tea and do nothing but watch and be in aura that you've been given these miracles? And they go, oh, no, it's too much to do, Maggie. Yeah. And I said, um, and so do you have these moments instead when you lock yourself in the toilet and go, why did I start breathing? It's just too hard. And, I, and they go, yeah. And I said, and then the child who's driven you to the toilet five minutes later has melted your heart with how much love you feel for them. 
And about 10 minutes later, feel the worst nappy you've ever had in your life. And it's this roller coaster of emotions, yeah. roller coaster of emotions that um, if we weren't being, weren't judging the experiences and we were just going with the experiences and letting the experiences teach both of us, yeah. Yeah. then we would be a lot calmer within ourselves absolutely within ourselves and I had to do some work around my play attitude even though I had that childhood to play there's one experience in my childhood that I had um, disappeared into this fantasy land and we had these kind of canna lilies they're soft really soft things with flowers that were actually at a drain at the back of our house nobody went near them they just were there all the time and I had done these little tunnels in and flattened them and tied them over and created arches I had had this most amazing play and my mum came out and went absolutely psycho and belted the heck out of me. And I had to really, it, it came up in therapy one day. There are times that I walk away when the kids play. And it was me with this moment of, oh, my God, any minute now, it's, it's, I'm going to get busted for it. And I had to really work at letting that go. And I know a lot of parents are going, well, is that going to make them smart? Is that going to get them to university to be a brain surgeon? And I'll go, you know what? At that point, joy and delight is a profound experience for children and toddlers. And Margot Sunderland, her beautiful book, The Science of Parenting, which I think is like a parent version is what every parent needs to know. She said that the brain has a tendency to learn from two things, exquisite joy and delight and pain. So if we don't have both, we won't have the, we will anticipate pain more. And it made sense to me that even though I had that really difficult mum relationship, I had the joy and delight of the nature life with, you know, brothers and sisters and bikes with no brakes and puddles and dams and you name it, we hit it. So that's the other thing I keep saying to those who care for children. I don't care how, how much you're trying to meet all the regulations of your centre. Have you factored in joy and delight as an absolutely critical component of your program? because you will change that baby or toddler's brain forever and they will then anticipate moments of joy and delight as a grown up. So that means less chances of mental illness and depression. Thinking about that helps parents too because quite often you, you either feel, and I see this in a, in a lot and sometimes feel it myself, that you parent either from a place of, of love or fear. That's it. Absolutely. Totally. And, that, and when I keep saying, okay, so what would love do right now? And also when we make a choice around that for my child, I think really a, a really good way to see things through a different, slightly different lens is that 90% of children's behaviour, especially misbehaviour, is developmentally appropriate. Yes. Dr. Gordon Newfold says that all the time. He says they're children. They're, they're not a performing monkey. They're a child and, as you know, temperament and gender and, and stress can all change our children's behaviours. And that's what I love when, when I, when I yep, those who've been to my seminars, I keep saying the seeking mechanism, the curiosity in our children, cultivate that. So don't go psycho when they block up your toilet with the toilet paper because that's an adventure in them to see what happens and, wow, look at that. You know, and there's a part of me today that sometimes sits down with those loosely woven toilet rolls are cotton nails i think they are and there's a part of me wants to pull it to see if the whole roll will come off with one big tug but i, I keep that four-year-old hidden a little bit so i keep saying, sometimes sometimes when they write with lipstick on your wall they were wanting to draw something and that's what was there so if i can see it as oh that's creative thinking that's the seeking mechanism i then don't have to see that's bad but I can modify the behaviour by saying we don't draw on the wall with lipstick and we don't block the toilet up with toilet paper. We don't play in here because we do poos and wees. Um, and you're going to clean up the mess. 
here you go, and make the cleanup a long period of time. It inhibits that behaviour, but doesn't shut down the children's curiosity to question this fascinating world that they see, that they're constantly interacting with, with all their senses and all their body and all their mind and all that beautiful heart at the same time. And that's what we need to make sure our children are doing. So next time they do a muck up, sit back and go, wow, that kid's going to be so smart one day. It's just creative. Whoa. Yeah, so, so that's such a beautiful perspective to have. And I know, um, and I think it was Catherine Cole's um, redirecting children's behaviour. I read something that she'd written that, and I'll paraphrase this wrong, but it was basically the things that you that your kids do that are normal that drive you nuts. Yeah, absolutely. And I was particularly annoying as a child um, <clears throat> because I wanted to know everything. Um, I was a questioner and, and I can I know this parents said, why, whatever, who said, what happens next? And my mum actually had left school when she was 14. And so I, I you know, I, I just made her so distressed because she couldn't answer any of my questions. And I got really frustrated with her as an adult as well, because not only wasn't she loving, she wasn't very smart in my world. You know, that's a terrible thing. But what she needed to have done is I think you need to work that out, my love. Why don't you go find out the answer to that? Where could you find the answer to that? But I already did it anyway because I knew she wouldn't have the answer. And my dad, being a scientist, he probably had the answers. And but he'd just do these little, you know, like you know, the little tiny bits for me to go to the next point. He knew he wasn't going to give me all the answers. He was giving me enough to make me think more. And the thinking part is the part that we're noticing um, diminishing a little with today's kids because they have such a fascinating world there. They find their answers at the tip of a click of a, a mouse. Oh, that's not even that on a, on a Mac, so that's disabled everybody anyway. But they can find it quickly without needing to ask someone or question someone or ponder. And that's one of the things I keep coming up with. The power of the ponder for children is I whatever's been going on, am I able to just sit and let my mind either take that to another level, sort out what I've just learned, reframe my whole who I am, or just let me sit for a minute because my brain's getting exhausted with trying to work out what is really going on here at whatever level. And that's, that's one of the things, if we can slow them down, <clears throat> children come up with the most amazing big things. And I remember once, not long after my dad died after the funeral, my, uh, I think he was about maybe seven. He came in and said, mummy, he'd been pondering because he came in when they, you know, are pondering, they're coming in because not quite sure you're going to, and we need to be beautiful about those, even if it's a really dumb thing or embarrassing. He said, mummy, um, so how far is heaven? Because we'd sort of, we were, we were Christian. We said he'd gone to heaven. He just wanted to know how far it was. And I looked and he said, so do you think it's past London? You know, like he was trying to think, is 28 hours on a plane going to get him there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God, I love that creativity. I love that pondering. And I said, well, we don't really know, love, because no one's come back. But um, so in his concept, he sat down with a tiny concept of, I wonder how long it took Pop to get there. Yeah. And when I was teaching high school once, we were doing a question about death and dying. And... Um, a couple of the boys said a couple of questions. They'd never found anyone safe enough to ask these questions. So they've pondered these since they were little. And one boy said, uh, Maggie, do you think if Jesus had been crucified in an electric chair, people would be wearing little chairs around their neck instead of crosses? Wow. Wow. Look at that thinking. 
I loved it. And, and another one said to me, Maggie, they also say we'll meet our loved ones on the other side. Well, if their body is cremated or buried, how are they going to, how are we going to recognize them when we walk through the pearly gates? I love that thinking. Beautiful. And Beautiful. I want that thinking to be encouraged within our homes. Um, yes. and, and sometimes we just need to pause a little to recognize there's an opportunity. And boys will often come up to you and give you a little tiny bit that they want to go deeper. And if you miss it, they walk away. And nature can be really powerful in helping children understand life. I know, yeah. you know, we live on a farm and um, probably about a month ago, we were out in the paddock and, and a calf had died. And we, I was chatting to my two-year-old and my four-year-old and we were talking a little bit about life and death and heaven and the cow had gone. It, the, first they thought it was asleep and I actually explained to them, no, it had actually died. And Nash said to me, has, has it gone to heaven, mummy? And I said, yeah, it's gone to heaven, mate. And he said, well, maybe grandpa can look after it. Yes. Yes. I've had four-year-olds who've been able to soothe grandma because, you know, yeah. um, it's all right. Now Poppy's in heaven and Mrs. Brown's up there and she makes scones and that's yeah. really comforting. Now, one of the things I've noticed is as the modern world has expanded, less people come from a space of having faith. Now, obviously, I'm a death specialist in my spare time, and I've worked with children and families with sudden death. And there is a really brilliant free article on my website, Tanya, that people could go to if they have a sudden loss with, that affects young children. It's called Death Through the Eyes of a Child, and it will give you lots of tips on how to cope. But um, we have a lot of children who have no There is no heaven. There is no faith, um, and it's not taught. But what we know is that children in the magical window which is really under under 10, but under seven particularly. Um, <clears throat> the imagination is a comforter and a soother. So I had um, a couple of children come to me. And so I, I had to create an imaginary place that we could pretend that their, and, and, you know, their loved one had gone to. So I created an, a track that's, that's available on my website called um, The Magic Yellow Cloud. So I use the metaphor and the concept of somewhere special, um, but it's more childlike and friendly. The child's imagination is so much more real. So it's about a little girl whose rabbit dies. And we go through, no, it's not asleep, lovey, it's dead. Why did it die? Because I loved it and, and it hurt. So we went through the feelings and and the mummy sort of says, everybody dies, sweetheart, and, and it is sad and this pain will be with us for a while. It will eventually go. So they do the funeral and it's really important as a, an acknowledgement to farewelling the body reverently. And then her, her auntie comes and does a little imagine next day and says, let's pretend. Let's pretend you could go on a magic carpet ride all the way up and there's this huge yellow golden cloud and on it you can pretend that Snowball is still there and you can hop off and play. So what happens in the child's are you keep the connection of the one they love in an imaginary domain and it eases the crushing pain they can feel. They will do that in an imaginary way for as long as they need to until it doesn't hurt so much. So once again, when I'm working with families who have a child or a parent going to die with cancer, um, I one of the tracks I use a lot is the Beach Bliss one. So the children go up, they all go up, walks up this beach because afterwards they're going to meet on the beach. Beautiful. And I know how much of a comfort that is for children. So all we're doing is working with the powerful imagination that will soothe and protect our children. Um, and if they have none, death is way more powerful way more powerful so once again at some point they'll sort out what they believe but while they're children we need to give them something that makes them be able to deal with those big ugly moments in life in a positive way a number of times at funerals you hear people say oh well mum i just sure hope they got your favorite chocolate up there and some scrabble 
you know, in heaven. And we laughingly talk about it, but the metaphor of, and really what it is that supports us is that this connection of love is never completely lost. We may not have them physically, and that's when kids understand that. So sometimes I noticed this was way before I did my training in um, counselling and therapy, and I did art therapy as well. I noticed children um, not long away from death or not long away from their parents' death drawing butterflies and rainbows. They knew. They knew that there was this this thing that was coming that would, would and and that's why we just build on that and, and reassure our children that they can become very powerful, um, you know, conquerors. I had to laugh because I, I keep saying to parents, try and get pets that have a tendency to die early, like guinea pigs, because the first few times they nearly squeeze their guts out, don't they, when you hold them. And that's because they need to learn about empathy and softness and kindness. And there is new research showing that really aggressive males uh, never had that moment. So therefore that imprinting between two and four is vital. But we want them to have a tendency to die so they get exposed to death. And they get exposed to giving, you know, like the funeral and things, because that is a rite of passage and a ritual that children need to understand. And I have had mums come up to me, uh, you know, many years after I've gone and done the first time, I say, Maggie, thank you so much for that. Our kids just conduct all our pet funerals. We've actually got a whole line up at the back of the yard. They do the whole bit. They, they have the funeral, they do the ceremony, they create the food for the wake afterwards and take photographs. And we've got a little gallery that, and I love, that we can empower them with that because I had a friend of mine um, whose son got a tumour on his um, shoulder when he was 14. He died in 10 months and I walked the journey with his family and the dad was a social worker and the mum was a community nurse and when I visited him a couple of years later, he hadn't gone back to work and I, I, was, I sort of said, what, so what happened? And he said, Maggie, I had no concept of death. My mum and dad are in their 90s. My siblings are in their 60s, 50s and 60s. I've never had a dog die. My first death was one of my sons and it unraveled my mind. I have not, and I, he has been working, helping other people with death and yet had no concept himself. So he said, please, I heard you say that one day. Now I know why it's important to empower our children to know that we can recover. And it's also similar to major disasters because you know, the Queensland floods are really, really bad ones. I mean, last year was bad enough, but the ones before, um, what we were finding were there were parents saying, oh, look, I'm, you know, I think it was one of the um, newspapers said, could I write an article about how to support children who've been traumatised by the floods? And one of the things I put in there was, please consider not sending your children away to Grandma in Melbourne or wherever their grannies are to avoid it. The number one terror of our children is, is my mum and dad okay? So being able to cuddle up with you in a tent at night with the chaos around them actually is where they need to be. If we send them away, we re-traumatise them. And I said, and then you show them the part after disaster when the helpers come, when the laughter comes, when the food comes, where people come together with this great gathering and, and the brooms and the brushes and the muck and children want to help. Yes. And yes. it was sort of like... Um, seven or eight months later that um, some of the parents had sort of contacted me and said, I just wanted to thank you for that piece of advice because I was ready to pack them away. My children are stronger, they're more competent, but we've watched the children come back who missed it all and they've missed the good part of the tragedy. They have, they've come back feeling disconnected and they're angry at their parents for sending them away quite often. So thank you for that. But once again, take the opportunity to see it as a learning curve um, and, and children just want to help. And even when the um, children were killed in that ghastly thing in America, 
I remember um, parents saying, oh, what do we tell them? And we sort of had to tell them that sometimes these bad things happen because some people don't come from a loving place um, and that they wanted to do something to help. So at night we were getting those children to send rainbows of love to the parents and to the little ones in heaven. They were drawing the most beautiful pictures. Um, or could they raise some money to send to create, you know, so in other words, give children a capacity to help and you have set them up for for being able to overcome adversity. So that secret thing, we know the power of love, power of love is beautiful, but we know the power of hope. And I think that's something that little children understand a bit better than some of us cynical or grown ups that there is great power and hope. And I think um, we need to remind them of that, that that is something in life. It's it's not just caring about other people, it's having hope for the goodness in people. Um, and, and I see that all the time with little children. I just, it just makes my heart melt all the time. You know, those little moments where they reach out to another child who's crying, because I fly a lot. And um, <clears throat> um, I was watching two little ones. I, they were literally under, under 12 months of age. They were in seats kind of either side of the aisle. <clears throat> and at different times having this little conversation, but they were reaching to touch each other beautiful, for most beautiful. of the flight because that's what our innate humanity is unless we damage it and make it frightened or make it bad or wrong. And that's one of my big gripes is that we're taking away safe touch from our children in early years centres because we fear it. Um, in actual fact, that's we're separating us very early and teaching them that something that can be can be um, safe and significantly important is wrong. And that's one of the things Claire Warden and I spoke about in my chat with her was that when her kids in, in her beautiful nature kindergartens fall over and they're, they're upset, then they give them a cuddle. I know. Because it's a human behaviour. It is. Hello. What have we done? You know, there's not a pedophile hiding on every corner. Um, and I, when I was teaching high school, I used to kind of like send home a letter quite often to the parents at the beginning of the year saying, I am positive touch you know I will put their arm on the shoulder I'll touch their head and I'll push them on the back um you want your, your, your child moved out of my classroom because I'm a threat do so and in my principal front. used to come up yeah I want to be up front because I cannot teach any other way it's out of alignment with who I am um and the principal would say to me oh have you sent the letter home I said yes I have and he would say well what am I going to do with the 28 parents who've rung up who want their kids in your, your classroom and they're full and yes. I said, well, what's that message? Do we want someone who's able to offer consistent, loving care that's respectful? Yes. Well, what is that? And are we allowing that to happen in our centres and our schools? I think we are. No, no. Oh, something yeah. to uh, definitely aim for and definitely nurture yes. within our teachers as well as, as children. So um, now let's talk for a moment about self-esteem and resilience. Yep. And you talk about something called authentic, or sorry, healthy, authentic self-esteem. Yeah. Can you talk about what constitutes that and what sorts of things we can do as parents and yes. be mindful of so that we can help nurture those things in our kids? Yeah, no question. So in my world, to keep it as really simple as possible, there are two sides to self-esteem and one is called self-efficacy and that is what can I do for myself, which is also when I put number nine on my building blocks of building resilience in children is self-mastery. What are we getting in our children that they can master, not just averagely do? Um, and that's what worries me again about the messages from NAPLAN because it's saying, you know, we want you to be smart in these things. We know there are kids that are not wired. They're meant to be our artists. They're meant to be our fixers and doers. They just, this isn't going to be what it is. So th that's why I get cross because we took out things like monkey bar, which, um, you know, had lots of capacity building in it because you didn't ever go all the way across the first time. 
the moment that you went all the way across like your big brother or your sister or your friend is a peak moment that we go, oh my goodness, so peak moments of success change the way we see ourselves. So the moments of mastery and self-efficacy, which is why I keep saying we've got children in year one who can't pull their pants up, can't blow their nose or can't feed themselves because mummy has done it because that's what a good mummy does. In actual fact, we are creating a neediness and a dependency and often a learned helplessness that will impact their self-esteem for their entire life. So that's one of the things. And some of those things aren't academic. You know, we want children to get their own drinks and we want children to know where their stuff is. We want children to be able to put their jumper in their bag. They're not big stuff, but they do need some coaching early on to master. And the second thing to self-esteem is at some point um, we have to accept ourselves and love ourselves and respect ourselves. So children have that mirrored back to them. And I remember Jenny Mosley, who does Circle Time in the UK, one of my absolute, you know, legends who's guided my work. Um, she said, what happens is children don't look in the mirror and see themselves. They actually see themselves reflected but back from us. Yeah, what they see through our eyes and our words. And I see a lot of shame language around children. I see the rolling of eyes and exasperation and, you know, you know, why don't you act your age and you should be able to do that. So that when you shame a child, you actually really chronically damage their self-esteem. So it is that you can do that. Do you need my help? You want to have another go? So it is actually how do I see myself? And so the two together are really, really important. And that's why when I'm when I'm working with this this new work I'm working at, the nine things that you might like to know before is that um, <laughs> uh, gender differences significantly can affect the way we speak to children and expectations of children. Um, the, the rooster and the lamb, you know, the dominant, loud, you know, narcissistic tendencies to the gentle one, we, we have to kind of coach them differently to come to a place of self-acceptance, um, that we all belong in a family, um, that, our, that it, it is the belonging that's more important than are you excelling and making me look good. And I think the other one that comes up under this is when people share with us um, how deeply they love us, then we can love us. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that um, Daniel Siegel writes in, he's written some amazing books, but the one on Mindsight, he talks very much about babies form a, a me map first, and the me map includes mummy. Yeah. Then as they get to see mummy separate, it's a me and a you map, and then finally we create a we map. Now, when there's interruptions in those, from poor attachment or trauma, abandonment, abuse, whatever, then we have distortions in our map. So we become at war with us. Yeah. And that's the one that comes up in adolescence so much. The self-loathing and the self-hatred at the moment in, in, in adolescence is frightening. Um, and particularly in our boys as well now, our incidents of boys now um, striving to look like something on TV but cutting and hurting as well. That's a sign that somewhere in amongst all that there's been some disruption to that. So once again, it's that self-esteem says um, it's never constant, you know, it doesn't matter what adult I meet. <laughs> um, we have a bad day, don't we? If we've just backed into someone, we don't feel so good about ourselves, or we've got a kilo or two extra we don't want. Um, or somebody said something unkind to us. We struggle with those feelings. And that's the other side to it. Are we helping our children to identify big, ugly feelings and to manage those big, ugly feelings? So being able to deny them, that, um, you know, someone said something unkind that you don't feel too good about it, but that, you know what, that's what happens in here. We can take a big breath and we can let that go or we can say, okay, I do have these people who care about me and I, I, I probably was a bit mean. I probably could have made a better choice, 
So that sensitivity to criticism is also what feeds the criticism to ourself later. So that's why when we're looking at, if you're, if you're doing the sort of stuff I talked about with Tony Christie again, that says, um, would you like your nappy changed? Um, would you like this or this? You are respectfully giving them choices that say this autonomy helps shape my, my competence. It shapes, I'm actually having what I like, not what you think I should have. So all of those things later on shape the way that we see ourselves. And then the other big one that I write about a lot is, are we allowing our children to be who they've come here to be? Every child has a unique set of gifts and talents and strengths. And some dodges that they don't do so well. So obviously patience wasn't a big one of mine. I'm still working on it. Um, but I have some other strengths. Do you see what I mean? And I think sometimes the spark inside our children may not take them up an academic pathway. But you know what? The confidence they gain from that may mean they'll come back and, and, and have another go later. And that's one of the things I keep thinking our, you know, our school systems aren't always allowed the individual and uniqueness of our children partly because we have to you know educate a lot of them at once so it does come back to our parents saying you know what they just you know i've just got a yard full of chooks out there because he loves chooks and we just breed chooks and he's the chook man out there and he's doing that and he's five he knows every chook's name and how many eggs they get and who's the dad and the mum and which sperms which and i love it because if we follow a child's passion it can lead into amazing things, but it can lead into a love of life and a love of learning. So that, that you know, any of those things that we're able to show our strengths and our gifts instead of just people telling us what we do wrong. And that's why I get worried about the pushing the academics into our early years, into our children before they've necessarily found some strengths or joys and delights. And some of the uh, emails I'm getting at the moment make me cry. Um, and these children that are getting incredible lists of words to learn well before they're developmentally ready and there's no play equipment in their centre and I'm thinking oh goodness so can you see what we're doing to the spirit of the child to the self-esteem of the child to the you know they can't respect themselves of all we're giving them is a bat boring world full of rules and black line markers to fill in it's, it's just disrespectful to the innate nature of children at that age them to get off things rather than inviting them to, um, to... yep yeah, I spoke to I was chatting to Ron Swaysgood, who's um, a yep. conservational biologist in um, at San Diego Zoo, and we were talking about inviting kids to nature or inviting kids to do things rather yes. than always telling them to get off the garden, keep out, and whatever. Oh, I love that, and it's so interesting. One of the things about our nature play, and it, isn't it great? We're infecting so many places and communities around Australia. I just I've always been Tim Gills, you know, Liguri down the down the line. But what I love now is when a, um, someone, even just recently, I've gone to a restaurant. They have a big patch of lawn, of a slope, and the guy said, "Maggie, um, we're thinking getting some swings." I said, "Just wait. Let me have a little chat with you." Um, you know, we're in an area with massive great trees. I can see some little timber steps, and massive rocks, and a few. I, you won't need to put swings in here. We've already got this area where we watch kids just roll down it, run along it. They will actually entertain themselves. They only need a few extra little bits of props. He went, really? I went, yeah, less is often more for kids. But look at this glorious place you've already got for them. And he's just in his mind was ready to go off and get those ghastly coloured things that are built by adults to keep safe and as boring as bat poo. So fix that one up. Yeah, And, and quite often parents get um, frustrated because you have to stand behind the swing and help your little ones. Whereas out playing in nature, they can you can watch. You can keep eating. You can keep eating lunch at the restaurant. Yeah. I love it. Have, have, your, have your nice hot coffee. Absolutely, that's good. <laughs> you talked before, Maggie, about understanding 
that children are individuals and, and helping them understand that they're beautiful and they have their own gifts and unique gifts and passions and, and developing those. Yeah. Do you find sometimes that parents tend to parent their kids the same? And how can mm-hmm. we, can you give us some tips on maybe how we can help nurture those differences while, while still being a team as a family? Yeah, that's huge. And it's probably the biggest feedback I often get after, you know, I've done one of the seminars and explored, you know, roosters and lambs and the difference with the temperament because um, nobody knew that they were going to come differently and you have got one child who does your head in and, you know, you're actually trying thing after thing after thing and often what we do is we're probably being incredibly inconsistent as well. Um, Okay, so the things that make a difference is that, you know, the sensitive child really needs a lot more gentle parenting. If you lift your eyebrows sometimes too quickly can break their heart. They're incredibly sensitive. But at the same time, we do need to build the capacity in those children so they can have more resilience and and have a bit of rooster in them or they become wimps and victims. And with our with our roosters at the other end, uh, they are have a really big sense of importance in their world. And yes, they do need to build the empathy. But at the same time, when you're disciplining them, you need to give them, because they are quite sharp, quite smart little doozies at times, is identify what the issue is that concerning you remember not the bad behavior the issue that's concerning you and you need to look at sometimes and go is that actually something I need to be thinking about because when I um some of the play even some of the sibling rivalry that's going on I keep saying you know that's actually helping them grow emotionally and socially it's only when it becomes physically hurtful verbally hurtful or you know there's there's really nasty stuff going on that we actually technically need to step in because they are learning how to deal with those people in our workplaces later. It's not everyone's a warm, fuzzy human being. Um, to really pause when you have a look at whatever it is going on and and and, and go, you know, mm, is this just me reacting to something from my childhood? Is this me at the moment tired, so I'm actually not coming from a grounded and loving place? Is this me coming from my head, not my heart? Um, and quite often um, you can nip things in the bud by um, non-verbal communication or walking in and just transferring, distracting, moving the energy, taking them outside. So many little things, just remembering that 95% of that behaviour is, you know, it's developmentally appropriate. And I think the other one is the discipline issue. And, and that comes up a lot because what we notice with today's children, they are more stressed. Their world is busier. Um, it's noisier, it's got more visual stimulation. So in actual fact, to manage their nervous system before they tip into tantrums and meltdowns is actually less. So when we talk about nature play and we talk about music and we talk about really loving relationships, um, that creates a much bigger space for them before they tip over. And we, we're more attuned to knowing, oh, God, it's been a while, they're probably going to get hungry any minute and now it's going to be a, a fight. So I think it's that also tuning into our children before they get to the tip over point, reading the cues and we read those cues when we are attuned to our kids. So as a mum of sons, you know, we just move things along quite quickly. (laughs) There was always food, a big bag of apples in the back because I knew they'd always be hungry in a nanosecond and get crabby as heck. Um, And also boredom kicks in so quickly with some children and I keep wanting put them in situations sometimes that actually aren't child friendly. Do you know what I, and you know, that's the sort of thing. Sometimes we want to go to the coffee shop and it may be a coffee shop that's not quite as child friendly. Well, for a boy, you know, you've got two and a half minutes. Yeah, I can't even serve the coffee and they've already gone psycho and we bust the child. And I go, 
that's when I used to take a takeaway to the park. I got my coffee. They got what was actually really good for them. I don't have to go into psycho land shout at them people say when will they learn to go to a coffee shop and I said well you know like prefrontal cortex takes a lot of work and I jokingly say I didn't take mine to a coffee shop till I was 22 but I did actually um, so can you see once again we've got to look at am I making choices that are putting my children in a situation that's increasing their chances of feeling they can't cope okay. yep you've got plenty of time later yeah yeah that's great to help them develop empathy as well. If we yes. have empathy for them and how they're feeling and the things that they like. Modeling. Yep, modelling. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely modelling it. And I know at different times I've said to parents, um, you know, just taking really big breaths every now and then and slowing down because we can, we often wired and we react to some of the stuff that is our own stuff, not our children's stuff. And we've put something in there that's actually not necessarily there. So our own big ugly thoughts can trigger our emotions quickly. And I keep saying, reframe again. You've been given a miracle. Think of the mothers who've never been able to have a child. Think of the mothers who've lost a child. And you have a miracle in front of you. Is this really worth it? So don't sweat some of the small stuff. And when we when we do those patterns of, and I know lots of mummies with sons will say, God, they never listen. I have to say it 15 times. Um, and when I code to them how our boys hear best and they've done it, I look at this huge shift and I, I had this mum come up to me. No, she emailed me um, not long after she'd been to one of my boys, 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 when she said, Maggie, I just didn't get it. I did have a brother, but he was older than me. And I, I went home and I consciously lowered my voice. I didn't talk to the back of his head. I stopped giving him too many instructions. I got down right next to him every now and then and asked him if he wanted something. Maggie, in 24 hours, like next morning, he's come up to me, taken my hand, linked my fingers and said, I love you, mummy. So he has felt immediately closer to his mum because she had learnt how to communicate with him in a way that he felt really much more loved and respected. And it's tweaking those little things. And that's, that's kind of my mission. I just want to give you ideas to try in your home and to know that there will be a day, none of them will work. You'll think you're the worst parent on the planet um, and you will wonder why you started breeding. And that's why I say, for goodness sake, say, oh, mummy needs some time out. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm going to have a bath. I'm locked the door. I'm unavailable. I will love you when I come out. But right now, I'm not loving myself or you either. And it's like this moment that says, this is really hard work. And when you do that, they go, oh, because there's this kicking. That's, we've crossed this line. And it's much better than hitting and shouting and put that bath and water in, put the bubbles in. They will poke notes under the door. Of course they will. Ignore them. Um, and when you do come out, you are so much back in your heart. They will feel it. You will feel it. But what you've done is be the alpha in the house that says, you know what, right now I'm not so good. And I can come out and say, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got tired and cross with you. I love you all, but I just, it just wasn't right. And, and thank you for being patient to give, let me have a break. Seriously, our kids will let you do that. And nature can be a really good respite in, in that as well, absolutely. Just going, getting outside and getting nature, a bit of nature and perspective. Well, in my world, it was the, and I teach parents, especially the mummies at seminars. Mm. Now, see the pile of washing? Watch my leg right over the top, keep walking. Now, watch that. I did that again. Over the top, keep walking. Because take them outside. I am the person that can shift the energy of the house. There were times on my home in the car with my boys, I'd go, not going to be a good afternoon if I go straight home. We head to the park. 
we head to the beach, we head to a patch of bush and let them run before I come home. I just knew that we're going to have a happy and calmer house when we got home. Um, and sometimes that we need to recognise that, Ooh, you know, if we lock in our schedule, then we can do our own head in. Mm. Yep. And I keep saying also every mummy should have a very large block of family chocolate somewhere for the moment that they're not travelling too good. Yep. Yep. And uh, instead of eating it in front of the children, you just hide in your bedroom, lock yourself in the wardrobe, whack it down and come out. Because so, we don't want you showing that you're being a pig in front of your children. But in actual fact, that serotonin kick will be just what will get you through that day. And the next day when you're with your girlfriends, you'll be able to have a good cry into the coffee and go through the disgusting things that happened on that day and vent it out. But right then you can't go and do a vent out with your girlfriend. So do something really quick that kicks you up and then forgive yourself later for being less than perfect. And they've probably done the same thing the day before as well. So yep, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> helps to talk about it. Um, <laughs> that, I guess, taking time out really speaks mm. to what you, about the importance for children and, and us as parents as yep. well for stillness and silence and mindfulness. Could you explain yep. a little bit more about what you mean by that and how you find it? Yeah, look, it is, it is like a moment of magic when there is just this quietness and what we don't notice is how stimulated our bubbies are getting with, with our screen world. Um, the tellies are much bigger. Mm. Having them on in the morning on breakfast TV does kill kids' heads in without us even knowing because it doesn't bother us. So those sorts of things is we can we turn everything off and demonstrate that sometimes we need just quiet time. Quiet time might mean, um, you know, we are just going to sit down for a moment, have a quiet story, or I'm, we're going to lay on the beanbag on the floor. And it's, I keep saying, Dad, need to demonstrate quietness better than mummies because when dad lays on the couch if you've got one he just goes <laughs> within a second but if mum lays down her eyes are going oh my god I didn't get that washing out the dry and having put things on the clothes now I have got the meat out the freezer and in other words we just don't stop yeah. and that's partly because our mind is busier the other things are what are we doing that soothe ourselves and soothe our children yep so those moments that we do the tickle point at the back of the neck when we're behind one of our children who's just looking like they're going to go a bit over the top or that we get home and we take our fruit outside we go out into nature um we have picnics on the back lawn a bit more often in summer than we would eat at the table just because nature will pull us down yep, yep. or setting up a very a small walk before tea whatever if you haven't got a cat pretend i love the children who've got a pretend cat they just drag along a lead. There's nothing on the end of it. I love it. Cat or dog, it's, it's just a makeup one. And it's as real as ever they talk to it. But what you do is you trigger laughter. And laughter endorphins, once again, soothe the nervous system. So it's not just serotonin. It's connectedness. You know, and there are these little things that bring us down. And I've got lots of those tips. And you'll find them on my website. That just, can we slow down? And if you have children under five, I often say, please allow 15 minutes more than you think you need to get out that door at the time you need to because there's always a random poo. At, um, least, at least 15 minutes. <laughs> at least. And then you're not shouting at your kids. And then I also say, some days take a really big breath and say, I'm going to be late today because I have children under five. Because I see some women drive like maniacs to get to something that really people didn't even notice that they're going to be five minutes late or early. Do you know what I mean? Early year centres are good with it. Kinders and preps know that we've got young children. And I think really we need to just take that big breath and sigh. And if you start sighing around home, your children will sigh around home. Yeah. So the yeah. mindfulness part really is very simple. It means can we be present in this moment? 
Our children under five are always there. We're the ones who are hardly ever there. And that's what that connecting is. What I said before, micro moments of connecting with them will calm you down beautifully. And then when I micro moment myself and look at them and go, I am so grateful that you are in my life. You have already moved into a completely different state. Yep, just yep, changing just your perspective for that one for second that and seeing the gift, gift that you've been given. That's it, the gift you've been given, yep. You know, I have two kids and, you know, when you have two or more kids, you we, we talked about, you know, honouring individual differences mm. and, and uniqueness. What about one-child families and building their self-esteem and, and building <clears> their <throat> resilience? Is there a different... Yep. Is there different ways that you can you do that with only children? Mm. Um, not essentially. It's interesting because a lot of people still think, oh, my God, I've got one child, they'll end up being a sport brat. Absolutely no, no research anywhere validates that. So it's actually just an urban myth. Um, okay, so if I go back to one step, and I didn't answer one of the things you said before, how do I grow, grow, build that sense of us belonging in a family? That word of family, we need to have a really good conversation with our children over tea time sometimes to say, you know, some families only have one mummy or one daddy. Some families have four mummies and daddies, sometimes six, because we've got merged families. Some mummies have children that have come from overseas. So we need to actually have a conversation that says family is just a place where we are loved and safe. And where you belong. And where you belong. Once again, this is where we're loved and safe and the belonging being the number one. And that it is building the belonging. What am I doing that makes my children feel they belong here? Um, do they have, you know, those sorts of things? Do they have rituals and do they have regular routines that make us know what's going on? And really that, that means everyone's part of the team. Um, that doesn't matter. Very early on, have them take their plate to the sink or to help you clean up with things because we've actually got this brilliant, I can't remember one parenting expert, he said to me, Maggie, we've got clear evidence that shows the children that do chores as children are much better in their adulthood because they've learnt those belonging and responsibility. Helping mummy out is really important. Helping daddy do something, helping my sister do something sets up a code. So we're we needing to work quite hard at this because we're in a narcissist. I, 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 I want everything. I'm pestered because a lot of the advertising for children is about you getting what you want. When in actual fact, what they want is deep and profound human connectedness. So that is the important thing. Every now and then have a chat with whoever you're raising your children with or your network of support saying, how do we build more belonging for our children? What things are you doing? And, and one of the ones that accidentally happened for me, the year I was by myself with my four sons after my marriage ended, um, it was towards the end of term and I had four boys and I was working full time and everything was really getting weeds higher than the house. But I was only just skating on thin ice. And I'd said to them, to you know, it was the last day, and I, this idea popped in my head as we were heading home on the last day of term. I said, you know what? You guys have done really well. We've got, you know, no one got suspended or busted. Their reports were okay. No one's had stitches. We're going to go down to the coffee shop and have a hot chocolate sundae. So we went down and, and this giant chocolate sundae, they shoveled them in. I'd look at these faces on these boys. Obviously, it wouldn't work as well with girls because it's not quite the same, but boys definitely. And when I went home, they came in and they said, Mummy, can we do that at the end of each term? And I said, you know, we can have an end of term treat. So what happened was this little ritual. I decided to make it because it was a lot cheaper at home. Um, and also, I'd only had a skinny latte that day. And the boys had said, Mummy, next time you've got to have one too. And I went, yeah, you can't have a ritual when you're not in it. God, my bum's already big. Let's go with it. Now, so it became the last three weeks. The boys went going, oh, it's in the end of... 
oh my God, it's this many days to the end of term treat. I had my boys sparking right up to the end of term. And when the oldest one to uni, he rang up and said, mum, make sure they don't have the end of term treat till we get home. Oh, and even though now they're 24 to 32, sometimes on a holiday, one will walk in and say, mum, how about we have an end of term treat tomorrow? Just as a celebration of this memory, and I look at that going, look at your family rituals, share them that you're doing in your groups, take ideas from other mums and dads, because those repeated rituals bring the most powerful sense of belonging that our children, you know, yearn for, but will remember quickly. You know, and that's like round and round the garden. It's wired into children who've had it. If you haven't had it, you don't get the buzz. And creating those cherished memories for our kids is yeah, so beautiful for us, but beautiful for them. Um, Absolutely. You know, I Absolutely. always think, and, and I've got to get this right, but I always think, what will your kids tell your grandkids about yep. their childhood? Yep. Exactly. What do they? <laughs> I know, I know most people don't believe some of the things my boys say, but I'm sure they happened. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, obviously you said you you know, you were working and you had your four boys. What did you do and did you, what did you do to help get through that yeah. and, and keep uh, yourself sane? Yeah, there's no question that um, I had a collective and it's one of the things we keep saying to, to mums. Um, and there is evidence that shows that the um, healthiest of women have strong, reliable girlfriends and the healthiest of men are married. <laughs> That's quite funny. Um, so it is, you can't do it on your own. So you have to be able to find those networks of support. And I also say look around your home and look around your community to find, are there any older women who could be like a grandma or a granny to your children? Because mine obviously wasn't too flash. Um, and what happened once that I had an older friend come and visit, she was a very special friend. I'd been with her husband had died and she was the most generous, beautiful hearted person. So she came to look after them while I went off to a uh, parent night and um, she bought two chooks and two lots of chips and some ice cream. So if we have takeaway, we shared one bucket of chips and one, cause seriously, you know, solo mum. Anyway, um, halfway through the meal, quite out of the blue, one of the boys said, Oh, Pat, would you be our grandma? We got really dodgy grandmas. And, she became part of our family from that day on. She's never missed a birthday. And I want to say sometimes we need to collect non-biological people to support us on this journey. And I hope they live in your street, you know, for the days that you've got home and the car's broken down, the keys aren't, you know, all those moments that you know that the kids know they can run to someone and they could take care of them to your children come home. We need to open our hearts and open our fences and open our doors to our children um, with love. And that's what I'm loving. You know, I can see that now happening. And part of that's coming out of some of the initiatives of, you know, let's get our kids back out because it was good for us. But if we kind of have someone watching them, they can free range a little with us around and that we need our sisterhood. And this is really important. Mummy burnout is enormous. We need the sisterhood to go from where it is at the moment for lots of mummies, which is judgmental. We need to come back to just 100 percent unconditional support we need to share the vulnerable moments and not just you know go oh no mind sleeping all night when you look like you haven't slept for five years okay. we is need to, <laughs> which is so true um we need to go god i've had a crap week you know give me cake give me coffee let me cry because we know that actually helps us and so when the sisterhood is stronger and more loving all of our children will flourish because mummies are going to be happier and I was, I was listening to a parenting thing the other week from Don Riol, Miguel Riol, with a guy that wrote the Four Agreements. And he said in his culture, 
um, if mummy's happy, the whole family's happy. You know, he said, we, we just work around what can we do to make mummy happy? Because if mummy's happy, then daddy will be happy if he's around. But it's like, this is this dominant thing that's in the world that our kids pick up on and they worry about us. So what do we do? And we have to say, taking care of ourselves has to be important, not just always the kids in front of us. There are days that we say, you know, you've got the morning off, go get your hair done. Go do something you want to do. Go for a walk. Go and have a coffee with your girlfriend because that will impact our family and that doing it on our own. We need to look out there in our community for the women who have moved in who don't have friends because they're really at high risk of feeling alienated. So it still takes a tribe to raise our yep. kids and they don't have to be biological tribes. They've just got to be ones that love kids. Yeah, beautiful. Yep, beautiful. And, and that's so important, so important to, give to give you a break as a parent. Yes. Oh, respite, absolutely. <laughs> or therapy, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's my bath. That was respite. The bath. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Right. So, Maggie, you're also the patron. Patron, and when I was reading through this before, I nearly said patron saint. But anyway, yes. um, that's what I call it. <laughs> you're also the patron of Ballpark Community School in Perth, Western Australia, and as you know. Um, I've spoken as part of this interview series to their beautiful principal, Jill McAuliffe. And can you tell me from your perspective, what is it that this school offers for children and families and the community too, and that makes it so special and made you just want to really be part mm -hmm. of it? Ah, look, it just, I remember the very first time I visited, they asked me to come and do a parent night and Jill said, come and have a look at our wilderness part for our children. And I, I wept with joy. I just could not believe they had sat down and listened to the four to six-year-olds, when they said, we've got a space, what would you like? Oh, my God. That was just, where, did, where well, I haven't heard that forever. So <clears throat> that was the first part when I realised the respectful um, way that they allowed children to interact with their environment to create their schooling experience. That was one of the first things. And I, I the mud pit sold it for me forever. I just... I'm a highly kinesthetic and tactile person and I see very little of that happening for children and I see a lot of OTs telling me we've got children with really chronic tactile defensiveness and actually unable to touch things. So they've not used enough of that. Second was the absolute way they wove nature in is, is, is like the learning journey and uh, it was everywhere in the classrooms. I just love that. But it was everywhere in the yard. There's just things that the children are able to interact with naturally that draw their, their absorption into nature, but the respect that they build around that. So the whole time it's not developing an, an awareness of nature. It's developing a deep understanding of my place in nature and that I influence what happens in the outside world. So that's really empowering children to have a great social conscience quite early on, quite early on. Um, and then the other thing I loved was um, the way that they have two teachers, a teacher and assistant, and so that constantly, who are yes. both qualified teachers, you have two very switched on people you know, immediately in these beautiful classrooms that don't look very boring at all. You know, they are not rows. Um, and, and the way that they pick up something of the children's interest and flow with it and follow it and follow the children's questions and guide their questions excited me. It still excites me. I, you know, once again, I went and saw them do some more things just recently and I came away with my heart even fuller than ever that um, <clears throat> children are already questioning. And when we give them things that shut down their questioning, um, we actually are dumbing them 
them down for life. So these children want to participate in creating their curriculum. They do it in a very the other part to um, Bull Park is the role of parents. Yes. The parents yes. aren't these benign beings that hover around outside with no, no influence. They are strongly uh, involved with um, what's happening in the school, how we can improve our school. So in other words, if you have a community and you want it to be the best, you don't just make decisions at the top without consulting the two people that are really important. So they often have student um, consultations and conversations about how what would be good for the school. They listen to the parents, the staff come together. So we have a collective consciousness there that is just, oh, I just it's just really, really exciting. And, and every time I go, I, it just fills my cup of the potential we could do for education. Um, and the other thing is that it is a community. That is a community that everybody has a, a, a right to be there and, and a value and are respected for who they are. They respect the little toddlers just as much as they respect the middle school, the staff and the parents. And at times that means they come up with challenging um, conflicts as all communities, but the way through their conflicts is, is teaching children um, amazingly that, that they have an empowered space if they are respectful to others to negotiate their life journey and their learning journey. And it is so fascinating. The, the curriculum, yeah, they cover all the things that we have to do for every other normal curriculum. It is just done from such a different perspective that um, those children are so engaged. And engaged learners as a former educator is, you know, it's gold. It's absolute gold. Mm, absolutely. It's a, it's absolutely. A beautiful school. I love talking to Jill and I can't wait to get over there and, and have a look. And, and uh, hands on is amazing. <laughs> We're not even sitting on what they do. You join in on what they do. You so. have to join in. You don't sit around the edges. <laughs> no, absolutely. Beautiful. And they, they are built on, it, it is a school built on respect, isn't it? Respect for yes. the environment, yeah. respect for each other, respect it's for themselves. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And what I really love is too is their, their approach to play too is, Play is essential. It, it is incredibly important. So when those children go out into the wilderness area, which is just, just you know, everything they wanted, they don't go for the 20 minutes. They go for long periods of play. So you immerse them into um, a world that allows them to grow on all levels in a healthy way. And they're right next to Lake Munger. So they go out and take care of this beautiful lake. They interact with the lake and marine biologists. And I just... I just get very excited. I'm extremely, extremely proud um, to be the patron saint of Bull Park and uh, I hope I will be until I fall off the perch. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Um, so uh, I imagine you get asked, and you've already said, you get asked a lot of questions by parents. Can we maybe talk about one of the other most common things that you get asked? And is that... Um, is that what do I do when my child gets overly worried or anxious? Is that what, yeah. do you get asked yeah. that quite a lot? Well, yeah, absolutely. Now, <clears throat> in actual fact, that's what started my whole journey when I started in about 2000, recognising I was getting children from loving, stable homes uh, struggling to cope. <clears throat> so essentially that's a, uh, you know, it's a inner process. It's an inner world thing, which is partly why I wrote Nurturing Kids Hearts and Souls, because I had parents really worried about what their children's hair looked like in their uniform and their straight teeth. But they weren't aware that we're building an emotional, social and spiritual capacity in children to manage with those things. And feelings come from those sorts of thoughts. And we're doing I'm doing a lot of work around that. There's a couple of articles on my website. So once again, when I look at um, children whose nervous system, that's the inside of them, that, that whole parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system, when it's overloaded, it tips them into distress. So when children feel fearful, 
Um, what are we doing that builds pathways of calmness? But what is it that's triggering this? So too much stress. And you know, we know what stress is. It's a high, too high level of cortisol. And we have to be able to trigger serotonin, a calming or dopamine, which is more fun, um, reward or endorphins. So when I'm working with families, I've got to help them identify what is it that's causing stressors in your child's life at the moment that's tipping them to this level. Absolutely normal to have children who feel frightened of the dark, who frightened of bugs, who frightened of losing mummy, all normal childhood anxieties. But what we're finding are children with massive anxieties that collide together that paralyze them. So um, being able to create, you know, those sorts of support systems and helping them to be aware that if if the if the home slows down and and we get mummy and daddy a little calmer often the children's nervous systems come down anyway so it's not just a, a lifestyle thing it is actually a worrying thing that starts with children seeing things and one of the triggers that we're finding is they're seeing too much news on television so news on television now used to, it used to be just at night I was an old ABC one happened at seven o'clock at night and that was it well now it starts first thing in the morning so any disaster in the world is broadcast into their homes and massive big screens and child just needs one scene from that locked into their mind and they are now on the pathway to an anxiety disorder so we really are having to monitor more of the things that trigger early anxiety so once again poor attachment um, feeling um, disconnected I don't belong overloads the nervous system then you see one of those scary things and if you're also eating terrible food that isn't giving you the stability to stabilize your blood sugars all of those collide together and kids just tip over so the ability to regulate their emotions is something that Stuart Shanker writes a lot about and the things that build it for children are disappearing out of out of childhood because we've got these other things so nature is right up there with building self-regulation music play real play a significant um, presence of people who they can trust and feel safe with that's not Einstein stuff is it not really down the bottom of course overuse of televisions and screens poor food too much stress on children too much scheduling not enough time for kids to be kids so when we steal their childhood to make them smart we actually overload them and cause them to feel a lot of stress. So it's really common. And, and the number of our children now on antidepressants um, under five is, is an incredibly disturbing figure. That's incredible, That's isn't it? It's not just, you know, the yeah. ADHD or the riddle that they're on now. It's, it's actually um, further than yeah. that. And I have worked with children five years of old uh, coming from loving homes who would like to die. It is, it's heart-wrenching. And a part of that sometimes is they haven't had the free fantasy play. They haven't been allowed to be children who don't have to worry about the big world. You know, that's that magical window. You're not supposed to worry about the, you know, the, the earthquakes, the floods. You're not supposed to worry about the fact that you don't get on with your mother-in-law or that you've got a lousy sex life. It's actually the kids are meant to be kids. And I think sometimes um, there's an overshare of too much information to children under seven. Um, and we need to keep that age appropriate. We really do. We don't need to go into the big, dark, scary stuff because that can sometimes tip them over even more. And they can't, they're not developed enough to understand no. that. No, no. And so they'll just take one angle and turn it into something big and scary. So we've got lots of techniques. And, and at the moment I'm working on a, a specific one that, you know, we're gonna sort of like take the information into like specific areas so that parents can get information and can try material. Um, and there are two free tracks I'd like to mention, Tony, on my website called Safe and Sound and Sleepy Time, which parents can download for children under seven. 
if they're struggling with sleep. So we use an imaginary um, metaphor to make them feel safer. Um, and quite often it's because um, they're actually wanting to keep an eye on their parents when they're not around rather than them being frightened. And after the bushfires in Victoria, I had quite a few parents email me and talk to me about boys that were getting back in mum and dad's bed and they were about four or five or six. When I worked with one of those boys, they actually weren't frightened for themselves. They had seen a car burnt out that looked like daddy's car and they were wanting to get into bed to, to keep daddy safe. So once again, if we can actually get to it, but it's not always easy for that, but they can be frightened by tiny things and we need to be mindful of, of making sure that we don't add to those things by making their life so busy in those early years. And understand that they, they can understand a lot more than we think they yeah. can. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My little boy will sometimes, Mummy, I missed you. I was worried about you. Yes, yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got lots of little strategies that we can do with that that can help. Um, and that's that we're actually working on an app at the moment. It's going to be sort of love bridges. So one of the things we'd say for that is when he's worried about you, he needs to send you a rainbow of love out of his heart to you to make sure that you're still connected to him. Or he might uh, send you a special rock in your handbag that he's put kisses on that he will know is protecting you. So tiny things that we use the imagination with to soothe some of the younger children's nervous systems. Um, I love some of those. Once I had a lady who said her son got so distressed when it went to, when he went to daddy's the week and week about, you know, and um, I said, was daddy a safe daddy? He said, he is a good daddy. It's just, we don't get on well. So um, I said, well, can you send me to say, when he wakes up in the morning at daddy's, you'll send him a rainbow. At lunchtime, you send him another, and the last thing at night, he get a rainbow and he sends one back. And she said, she looked at me thinking as if that's going to make any difference. Um, and she emailed me back about, about a week later and said, you know what, we didn't have a problem this week wow. at all. Wow. And every now and then he said, did you get the one I sent at fruit time, mummy? So what it is, is the connectedness again. So children can pretend way more vividly than us adults. And by sending that rainbow, he felt really connected to his mummy and he was able to stay at his daddy's. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Simple stuff. And he won't get a double blind experiment that will prove that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so you mentioned before some researchers on your on your website and you've yeah. written five books which you're absolutely proud of as, as you know yeah. you're a proud mum of, of those babies. as well as your ba <laughs> you're, you're, you're spunky babies um how can we find out about those resources what, what what's your website yeah. and your facebook site yeah okay so just basically facebook is maggie dent and um we love people to come on there because at different times what we're finding is that's where i'm able to promote the common sense to reassure people that this is a common sense thing. Yeah, politically correct might be up here, but really have a think about it. And it's really so often I'm validating what's in people's gut anyway. Uh, MaggieDent.com is the website. You can also sign up to my once a month mostly, or that was what, six weeks this time, um, newsletter where I'll jump up and down about something. I'll feature a book that I think is really valuable for parents. Um, and it usually tells where I am on the road as well. And there is really a lot of free information on my website. My commitment is um, that I want the information out there, a relation that, that can be passed on to others. Um, and it's, as I said, there's, there's, there's little articles that you can cut and paste. You can email off to your friend who's struggling with something with one of her children. 
And then on YouTube, if you do Maggie Dent, there's lots of little mini grabs that we've done at different times. Um, Maggie moments, I've called them. Uh, and then, of course, the latest is we've now finally got our boys seminar up as an online viewing because we were getting so many emails from people saying, why can't you bring it to Sydney, Melbourne, everywhere else? And there's, and I'm already an old fart who's a bit tired. So um, it's good news that just for the cost of attending the seminar, you can then have the link to watch it as many times as you like, and you can show it to your centres, you can show it as something for staff. And um, that's what we want. We want to build understanding of what helps us be better parents so that our kids can, you know, feel loved um, exactly as they are, you know, not just exactly as the school system wants them. Um, yeah, and that we can, we <laughs> or as we want them some days, the sleep is usually really good. <laughs> yeah, and that's where nature can be really great. You get them outside and they run around in nature and then they conk out. They discharge nervous energy. That's exactly what they do. Yep, absolutely. Yep, well, absolutely. we have covered so much ground today and I'm just wrapped to be speaking to you. So um, do you have any last final words of little black duck yep. wisdom, as you would call it? Oh, look, stay in the moment. I really can't stress that enough because, you know, I am the mum now and an old fart and I accidentally look back at, I keep looking at, is this why my boys have turned out okay? And I just, I go back, oh, that's because this was, so I'm able to kind of go, I can actually, a bit of an experiment that's at the other end. But the one thing I do have as a, as a grown up old mum is I do wish um, that I had slowed down a little bit more. And I, you know, I was pretty good at staying in the moment, but I, I know that, there were, there were days I was hoping for them to get to the next level. You know, those of you wanting them to walk when they can't and then you can't find them and you want them to talk and then you can't shut them up. I think we wish away the stages and that I think we need to know that every stage will have a gift and have a bit of a challenge and it, that pause every single day and go, you know, oh, my gosh, I have been so blessed to be given these miracles because you can literally blink and they will be hairy and in their 20s. And you'll go, where did that go? Where did that go? And you won't be the person who puts a spark on their face. It will be somebody else. And you will go, gosh, I wish I had a little bit. I wish I had played more and I wish I had, you know, connected more. Um, and I wish I had not worried about did they eat broccoli today or, you know, are their clothes tidy? You know, all the little things that we do put a lot of energy into. It's do they feel loved? Do they know how secure they are in my love? Um, that's really it. So slow down, just slow down and enjoy that ride. Yep, slow down, yep, give slow them down. a cuddle at any age. At any age. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. I have loved chatting to you and you've, you're so authentic and so honest and so um, <laughs> brutally honest about how you feel, it, you know, you know and, yeah. and, and that's how a lot of parents feel. So thank you so much. I've learnt so much and um, I know that um, people are going to enjoy listening to you chat my and, absolute pleasure tanya thank you absolute so much pleasure. take care bye-bye well that's it for today thanks so much for listening i hope you enjoyed my chat with maggie dent isn't she wonderful if you'd like to learn more about how to get outdoors more often with your kids and get some simple tips and ideas on what to do when you're out there make sure you sign up for our weekly newsletter over at www.nurtureinnatureradio.com forward slash play. New episodes of Nature in Nature Radio hit the airwaves every Tuesday morning at Melbourne, Australia time. And you can also listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Next week on the show, I talk to the wonderful Claire Warden. Claire is a global educational consultant in nature pedagogy and she is the head of Mind Stretchers in the UK.
I talk with Claire about the whys, whats and hows of nature pedagogy and we talk a lot about unstructured play and the wonderful nature kindergartens springing up all around the world. You'll learn how nature is a powerful teacher and what parents and teachers can do outside the home or classroom to help their children learn about themselves, others and the natural world. With some great ideas for equipping your family and students for outdoor fun, you'll find that there is no bad weather, just poor planning and equipment. You'll also take away lots of practical ideas for some really fun nature play activities for kids of all ages from 0 to 99. And now it's time to switch off whatever device you're listening to and get outside for some good old-fashioned fun, learning and memory making with your family. Thanks again for joining me on Nurture in Nature Radio. I'm your host, Tanya Maloney, and I look forward to seeing you and your family outside. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening to Nurture in Nature Radio. Now let's go play outside. I'll race you to the door. See you again next week. Little trees need a chance to grow. It takes time and care, they're a lot like us, you know.